Starting in verse 13, we're going to read and study today from his word to the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 through the end of the chapter. Blessed is he 
to come in the name of the Lord. Father, we ask that you would come to us this morning. That we would hear your voice through this text. Through the work of your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us and strengthen us. That we would experience Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Over the years, I've learned that I can't change anyone. I've tried. You want me? There was a young man that many of you know that came into the family, uh, who we loved, uh, who we cared for. Uh, he grew up on the streets. For him, brokenness felt like home. And for him, health, a healthy life felt uncomfortable. And I felt like a, a, a father to this man. I wanted to treat him like my own son. My heart broke for him. I begged him to move in with me, live with me, eat at my table. We've got a, a place for you. We've got a warm bread. But at the end of the day, in the current stage of life that he was in, brokenness is what felt like home to him. He ended up back on the streets using drugs and uh, he's, he's wasting away. I'm just being real with you this morning. We can't change anybody unless they change on the inside. It's the only way somebody can be changed. We come into this text, and I read verse 37. It says this, it says, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, yet you were not willing And I realize that, that I'm the rebel. I realize that I'm the one who God in Christ has come after. And, and then I ask this question, am I the one not willing? He's trying to gather me in. He's trying to bring me into His refuge, into His home, at His table. But for you and for me, for so many of us, Brokenness is where we feel comfortable. Are you the one that God is pursuing and you're not willing to enter into His refuge? 
Am I the one that God is pursuing and I'm not willing to enter into the refuge of Christ? This is how this text just is to speak to us this morning. This text is addressed to hypocrites. Hypocrite, it means actor. To frauds, to fakes. And it's addressed to us. To call us to look inside and say, have I changed not on the outside, but have I changed on the inside? And as Christ is offering this refuge to come in and to sit at His table and to sleep in His room, in the warmth of His house, am I entering into that refuge? Or am I hanging out in my own dirt and filth? That's how I want us to go into this text this morning. Are you with me? Matthew has been relentless in his exposure of the frauds. Listen, if, if you're new to the church, one thing you need to know is we, we don't uh, just choose a topic and preach on it. We just take a book of the Bible and we just preach through it. So we preach whatever passage comes next. And recently, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's been passage after passage after passage after passage of fake, fraud, hypocrite, phony. And we just go to the next one. All right, so I didn't like intend to start out a series on hypocrites. We're just going to the next passage and we preach the whole counsel of the word. And so here we are again. This is, this is sort of like last week's message, which was, I think I called it uh, the face of the fraud. This is like the face of the fraud part B. All right, but I've changed the title. It's called the fate of the fakes. I'm just trying to keep our titles interesting at least change something, all right? Um, but we're just going deeper and deeper and on and on with, uh, with the text. And so we come to these, what are called the seven woes. The seven woes. Jesus is looking now not at His disciples, but he has turned his attention to the scribes and to the Pharisees, these false teachers, these religious leaders, these frauds, these hypocrites, these phonies. And he's delivering these seven woes. Now what is a woe? It's not a word that we typically use anymore. Unless you're trying to be like super biblical. Woe to that TV preacher. Did you just say woe? I've been reading the King James too much, brother. What is a woe? A woe is actually, it, we, it's, not, it's not a harsh condemnation, so we shouldn't see this as like damn or damn you or something like, like some kind of angry, Jesus is not like a red-faced, fist-pounding, angry preacher coming at these false teachers, but woe actually carries with it the sense of sadness mixed with a strong pronouncement of judgment. So it is strong, but there's a sense of sadness with this pronouncement. It is a, condemna a word of condemnation. And he brings seven of them. To, and he clearly, like a good attorney if you would, lays out before them the problem. This is why these woes are coming 
upon you, you hypocrite, you Pharisee. So listen, I want to do this. I want to talk about, again, who are the, who are the fakes? We're just going to continue that from last week. Who are the fakes? And then I want to end it by asking, what is the fate of the fakes? What is their fate? So let's just look at these woes. And there's, I'm honestly just going to preach through this. I'm looking at it. I'm going to explain it to you. There's not much more I can add to this because Jesus is a great teacher, okay? We're just going to walk through it. First, the fakes are leading people to hell. The fakes, these false teachers, are leading people to hell. We see this in the first two woes, actually, in verses 13 through verse 15. Imagine you went to the doctor and you had a large tumor protruding from your abdomen. And you get to the doctor and he looks at you and he says, you know, I think you're just gaining weight. Here, here are some diet pills that I've been selling. Go ahead and let me, for a small fee, sell you some diet pills and uh, just wear some loose clothing. You should feel more comfortable and go on your way. Well, the problem is what? The doctor is leading you through his own corruption, wanting to pad his own pocket, right? Through his own lies, the doctor is leading you to your own destruction. These are the first two woes that we see here against these false teachers, is they are leading people to hell. The kingdom of heaven is a central theme in Matthew. The door that Matthew has shown us into the kingdom of heaven is Jesus Christ Himself. And what does Jesus say to these false teachers about the kingdom of heaven? He says in verse 13 that you are shutting the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. It's as if people are moving toward the door of the kingdom and they're shutting the kingdom in their faces. A direct assault to their pupils, to their followers, to the people that they're teaching and leading. For, he goes on, for... This is how they're doing it. You don't enter yourself. You're denying the Savior. You're denying the door. And you get in the way and you don't allow other people to enter. Meaning they are lying to others about who Christ is. And they're therefore keeping people out of heaven. The second woe just takes it further. He says, you, uh, in verse 15, he says, you travel. You travel over land and over sea. To make one single proselyte, which would be like a, um, a follower, a disciple, a convert. You go through all this length to make a proselyte, to make a convert, and by the time you're done, they are twice the son of hell you are. Listen, false teachers' followers are often more condemning, harsher, more deceived than the, than, than the false teacher himself was. What he's talking about here by saying sons of hell is he's saying they're fit for hell. They're children of hell. That's where their home is. Your followers, the people that are flocking around you, you're making them even more, two times, fit for hell. As you yourself are. How is it that this is happening? How is it that we might keep people from heaven and send people to hell? Well, we can do it in two ways. One, through false, uh, teaching a false gospel. 
to teaching a lot of true things, maybe even a lot of true things from the Bible, but we somehow forget the Gospel. And what I mean by that is, God is the Creator. We are sinners, rebels against God. We need a Savior. Jesus Christ lived the life that we should have lived, died in my place, took the penalty for my sin on His own body on the tree, rose from the dead, and all who turn from their sins and trust in Jesus have the promise that they're forgiven now, and one day they will live forever even freed uh, from even the presence of sin. It's amazing how you can talk a lot about Bible and somehow completely avoid all of that. Gospel-less Bible teaching is damned teaching. It's teaching that creates a wide path to hell. A lot of self-help, a lot of good ideas, a lot of stuff, a lot of, a lot of jokes, a lot of humor. It'll make you smile, it'll make you laugh. People that can wow a crowd. And friends, Jesus is condemning them. Why? First and foremost, primary reason is because they're leading people to hell. Second, second way that we can do it is through making disciples not of Jesus, but of ourselves. So instead of showing people the way of Christ, we say, let me tell you how I did it. Faced with a situation, counseling, let me just tell you from my own experience what I did there, right? And then a lot of times we then find ourselves, instead of giving biblical instruction, we say, you know what? If you're not happy with your wife, Maybe you should leave her. You're making a son of hell <laughs> through making disciples of yourself, your own ideas, your own rules, your own laws. Our job as a church and our job as church members, as our job as Christians, brothers and sisters, of Christ, our job is to tell the truth. That is your job. And I don't mean by that in a, I don't mean tell the truth, like be this mean person who's always like, can, no, 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 no. Tell the truth. Like be clear with people. Be clear. Like how often are we in spiritual conversations with somebody and we lack gospel clarity in our conversations? How many times have you given someone spiritual advice, but you failed to give them the gospel, to show them Christ? Uh, it's because we lack clarity. Our job is to tell the truth about God, to, the truth about grace, the truth about forgiveness, and to tell it to everyone in every situation. Secondly, the false teachers, these fakes, they are also clever in verses 16 through 22. You guys remember like when you were a kid, someone saying something like, uh, hey, let me, uh, let me ride your bike for a little bit. All right? And then kid says, all right, hold up just one second. Let me go around the block one more time. And then when I'm done, you can ride my bike. All right, cool. Kid sits there, waits. All right. Kid comes around the block. Vroom, just keeps on going. Comes around again, vroom, keeps on going, right? Finally, stop. I, let me ride your bike. No, it's my bike. You said I could ride it after you went around the block. My fingers were crossed. 
You remember doing that, Tony? <laughs> My fingers were crossed. I didn't really mean it. That's actually what Jesus is saying the Pharisees do. It's a little complicated when you read it, but when you study it, it actually gets really super clear. They have these clever ways of getting out of stuff that they said they were going to do. Clever ways of, of backing out of promises. I, I, I was swearing that I would do that by the temple, but it's not really by the temple that matters. It's if I were to swear by the gold on the temple that matters. Uh, and so since I just swore by the temple, well, then that means that it's not, not uh, a concrete, hard and fast. You know, I'm, I'm okay in backing out of this promise. They would teach this kind of stuff. Or in verse 16, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's not by the altar, swearing on the altar that matters, but it's swearing on the, by the gift on the altar that really matters. That's what makes my yes really mean yes. And Jesus calls them blind fools. Jesus says, follow his logic, he says, look, if you, if you swear by the temple, you swear by all on it. If you swear by... Uh, 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 by the temple, you swear, swear by the one who dwells in it. If you swear by heaven, you swear by the one who has a throne in heaven, and then thereby you swear by the one who sits on the throne in heaven, you swear by God. What he's saying is this, is you can't make a promise and, uh, and get out of it in any way. Or in other words, to contextualize this, you swear by your crossed fingers, you're swearing by your body, and if you're swearing by your body, you're swearing by the creator of your body. You see what I'm saying? And what, he's, what his point is, is, is you just say yes. A yes in the kingdom of God is binding. Yes means what? Yes. yes. Yet we live in a society that is filled with broken promises. When I said my vows on my wedding day, I wasn't really in love. I didn't really mean it when I said those. I was young, I was stupid, and so, you know, I can get out of that. My pastor friends and I, we joke about the fact that uh, if, if everybody who said they would come to church came to church, we would all have mega churches. <laughs> 3,000 people this Sunday who said they would be there. <laughs> we live in a society where yes doesn't mean yes, does it? Oh, this is hypocr this is uh, one of Jesus's number two hypocritical theme. Finding ways to back out of promises. Number three, let's just keep going on. We got to go quick here. Uh, fakes are wrongly focused in verses twenty-three and twenty-four. So the picture he gives is that they have a drink. They're pouring maybe some wine, and they're looking in the wine, and there's a little gnat in the wine. And gnats are actually ceremonially, uh, ceremonially unclean. And, so they take this, their finger and they just kind of pull the gnat out of the cup and get, get the because nobody likes to drink a gnat anyway, right? You're going to pull that out of the wine. Some of you guys are dumping the whole, like the whole thing is now ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, right? They just pull the gnat out so they don't consume it. But, and then they go ahead and they take a gulp, and while they take a gulp, they swallow a camel. This is the picture he gives. It's comical actually, isn't it? Uh, the camel was the biggest animal known in their day to them. It was considered an unclean animal. So what he's saying is, is you're focusing on these, the, 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 these small little bits and pieces of stuff that, 
that you consider to be unclean, yet you're missing the bigger picture. And so he talks about, he directly confronts them about how they tithe their mint and their dill and their cumin. Listen, in the Old Testament, they were to tithe uh, of their crops. That was their income. Mint and dill and cumin, these are like little household plants that was really exempt from those old laws. They didn't have to tithe. Tithe means to give uh, 10% of something. They didn't have to tithe their mint, dill, and cumin. But they are going above the law into the minutia of, 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 of faithfulness. And they're taking every tenth mint leaf. That, that one's for the Lord. That one's going to the temple, right? Every tenth sprig of dill to the temple. And, uh, and every uh, one, one out of ten ounces of cumin going to the temple. Like all the, the focus on the minutia. Yet, he says, they completely uh, forget the big stuff. They neglect the weightier matters of the law, which is justice and mercy and faithfulness. You're focusing on all of the minutia. You're focusing on all of these little insignificant details, yet you're missing the big stuff. Quoting Micah 6, 8, He has shown you, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice and to love, what? Mercy. And to walk humbly, faithfully with our God. They're missing the bigger picture of the, of the spiritual life while they're just focusing on the wrong stuff. I remember when I was in high school in this youth group that I attended occasionally, this was like during the True Love Waits movement. Some of you might know what I'm talking about. And I had a friend who, they weren't holding hands, they weren't kissing, they weren't like touching each other. They were dating, by the way. I should, a guy and a girl dating like six inches. You know, let's just make sure we can get a fist between us, right? Um, yet he's looking at porn. You see what I'm saying? Focusing on all the, 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 the minutia of, what a, of, of external righteousness. Of doing all the right things so that everybody can see how holy I am. And I ain't even going to hold her hand because she's dirty. <laughs> but I'm getting online. Number four, fakes are externally focused. Verses 25 and 26. Fakes are externally focused. You come over to my house and I say, hey, you want a drink? You're like, yeah, sure. So, so I get a cup. Let's, let's just imagine we have this massive pile of dirty dishes. All right? My wife is saying right now that would never happen. And I pull out a cup. And you see some juice staying in the bottom and maybe even a little mold. When I was in college, we used to get mold growing in the bottom corners of our cups. That's when we knew they were ready to be washed. All right? <laughs> I'm serious. That's when we would dump the coffee out is when it grew lily pads. All right, let's go ahead and change, let's change the coffee. Um, so I take this cup and, and I turn the sink on and I, I take a rag and I'm just really carefully washing the outside of this cup, the bottom of it, and then I place it on the counter. You can still see that mold down in there, all right? 
I'll pour you a nice drink. Jesus says you're, you're focusing on the outside of the cup. You're cleaning up the outside. You're focused on the external, what it looks like uh, when, you, when, you, when you just take a glimpse uh, of this cup. But if you were to take a look on the inside, you would see that the entire drink is contaminated. Because your inside, your heart is dirty. This is what they do. They focus on external piety. Look at verse 25. Woe to you, scribes, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and plate, but the inside, they're filled with what? They're filled with greed, and they're filled with indulgence. We look so good on the outside, but on the inside, we, all, we, we, we idolize comfort, and we idolize instant gratification, and we idolize self indulgence and greed and wanting what is not ours. The Pharisees would debate the proper ways to wash a cup so that it would be ceremonially clean. And his point is, he's using that against him. He's saying that your own cup is dirty. Friends, are you so focused on the external and on the minutia of what people think of you are you so focused on, on your own success, career, finances, displays of religiosity, yet you are ignoring your dirty, filthy heart? This was the problem of these false teachers. Number five, fakes are deceitful, verses 27 through 28. Let's read those verses. Look at the text. It says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are filled with dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also appear righteous to others, but within you're filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Whitewash. Whitewash was basically white paint that would be used to, uh, on walls and, and uh, on houses, and when the spring rains would come, it would wash away all of the whitewash. Now, shortly after the spring rains was Passover. During the Passover season, you would have a lot of travelers, pilgrims, coming into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And as they would come, around the entry of Jerusalem would be all of these tombs. Some of them looked like monuments. They were beautiful. And a pilgrim might think that they're going up to a monument and they might touch it. Now, if they touch a tomb, that means they are ceremonially unclean. And so what then they would do is they would whitewash these tombs. Sometimes they would be completely painted white. Other times there would be a skull painted on the tomb. But it would be a sign for those coming into Jerusalem that these things which look beautiful, these monuments, are actually filled with dead people's bones. And if you get near them, you're going to get contaminated. You're going to become unclean if you touch one of these tombs. Oh, they would come into Jerusalem and these things would be dazzling in the sun. They would be beautiful and pure and white, but they're not what you think they are. And if you get close to these whitewashed tombs, you're spiritually, ceremonially unclean. You see what he's saying? To the, to, the, to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, you look dazzling and beautiful, monumental even, 
to those who are coming into Jerusalem, but you are dirty and anybody who gets near you becomes contaminated, filthy, unclean. They look impressive. Impressive TV ministries. Impressive buildings that their churches meet in. Uh, impressive titles after or before their names. Books, authors. They've got publishing uh, uh, agreements. Yet not everyone that looks impressive is what they appear. Not everybody who has letters after their name should be trusted. Not everybody who has a pulpit should be trusted. Not everybody who has a building should be trusted. Not everybody on the bookshelf in Barnes & Noble is worth buying or reading. Impressive. Wow. Wow, you were on Oprah? That's amazing. That's impressive. But as we get near them, what we discover is they're filled with death. Dead people's bones. Contamination. Lastly, we've got to quickly close here with this. Fakes are proud in verses 29 through 36. They're proud. You know, there's this old spiritual that goes, were you there? when they crucified my Lord. Do you know that one? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes. It causes me to tremble. 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 Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed Him to the tree? Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble. To tremble. To tremble. Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Why does it cause me to tremble? It's because as I consider it and think about it, I, I, I realize, yes, I was there. I was there. I crucified Christ. I find myself in that story. I find myself with blood stained to my face, with a hammer in my hands and nails in the other. I was there when, I cru when they crucified the Lord. Friends, the older I get, the more aware I become of my own sinfulness, the more I realize that if it were not for the grace of God, I would crucify Christ a hundred times in a row. Because when you get that close to divinity and you are you have to now deal with yourself. You have one of two options, and that is to kill him or to turn by the grace of God to him. But we realize that we were there. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath brought me life. We are called to recognize our guilt in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Jesus confronts their pride. He says, oh, let me just show it to you very briefly. In verse 29, he says, you're decorating these tombs for all these prophets who were killed. Um, 
But verse 30, look at verse 30 with me. He, he says, saying, we, if we, this is what they're saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding, in shedding the blood of the prophets. We are so proud today even. If we lived back then, we would do it different. If we lived back then, we would do it different. Then he says, yet you witness against yourselves, not in uh, building the tombs, but in their actions against Christ. You witness against yourself in verse 31. Verse 32, he says, go ahead. Go ahead and fill up the cup of wrath of your fathers. Verse 34, he says, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. These will be Christians that are going to be sent out among them who will be crucified and, and killed. In verse 35, the blood of Abel to Zechariah, that's the first martyr who was ever recorded dead to the last recorded martyr in the Old Testament. All of the martyrs, he's saying, from Abel to Zechariah, you're guilty of all of them. You've killed all of the prophets of God. And what he's getting at now is that now you're about to kill one who is greater than even the prophets. Go ahead and get, 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 get with it. We love to live in our, uh, our, our, our rose-colored views of ourselves, don't we? Man, if I lived back during the days of slavery, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have gone along with it. But yet you're going along with culture now. <laughs> right? Oh, if, if, I would have done, if I would have had the opportunity to speak where everybody kept their mouths shut, I would have spoke up. But you don't speak now. You see, we are so filled with this rose-colored vision of, of who we are. We think so much of ourselves. Friends, we've got to humble ourselves. This is exactly what these false teachers were doing. They were filled with pride. And they believed that they would not commit the same sins as their fathers. Oh, and let's take it a step further. If I was there when they were leading Jesus to the cross, I would have been right by His side and I would say, He's my Savior. You're going to crucify Him. You're going to crucify me as well. He is my Lord. Right? Or would we have been in the crowds? Would we have been nailing him to the tree? You see, calling us to recognize our guilt calls us to repentance. It calls us to humility and it calls us to repentance. We say, I killed him. I crucified him. What is their fate? Verses 37, 38, and 39, in that order, here's their fate. 37, verse 37, they miss the refuge. Jesus says, I've been like a hen trying to gather my chicks, but you were unwilling to come into my care, into my refuge. They miss the refuge. Number, verse, verse 38, their house is desolate. And that's a reference to the temple, meaning the presence of God is no longer with them. You're going now about your life without the presence of God. Verse 39, there is a coming judgment. 
You won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And friends, listen, that'll be said in two different ways by two different groups of people. By one group of people, it will be those who are, find Christ to be the Savior. The door into the kingdom. And they see Christ coming in the clouds, the second coming of Jesus Christ, and they say, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And I pray that all of you are with me together on that day, and I pray that we will shout it. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord as Christ comes. And there will be those who say, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And they do it out of fear. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. Those who fall on their knees before him, acknowledge him as Lord, but they do it with sorrow and with great fear. That is the fate of the fakes. Now the thought of Christians sitting in pews week after week, Sunday after Sunday, who are on their way to hell saddens all of us. This is reality, friends. There are people sitting in churches across this city and across this country who think they are religious, godly. God's got me. I'm with God. I pray to God. I know God. Friends, they're on their way to hell. Blocked by religious teachers, by Pharisees, by scribes. This is a call. Jesus' intent here has two effects. I believe His intent is first, uh, goes out so that Pharisees might repent. So that those who recognize, I'm a Pharisee, I've been leading people, that we might see our fate and repent and turn from it. And secondly, I believe it goes out to warn Christians. Don't be like this. Don't be like these Pharisees. Friends, do you have genuine faith? Do you have genuine faith? Do you have a faith that is as real on Sunday as it is on Friday night? You have a faith that's real when you're sitting in Bible study, but also it's a faith that's real when you're alone with your computer. Do you have genuine faith? Or are you focusing on all of the minutia of life, how much money you make and what people think of you? And, and all the while you are missing your own unclean heart. Do you have genuine faith? You must have genuine faith. Our problem is this. We have an unclean heart. And we can't change anybody. And we can't even change ourselves. So what do we do? What is our hope? Friends, I've got good news for you this morning. I ain't leaving you in your guilt this morning. I've got good news for you this morning. Everybody say Amen. Say, give it to me. There's another Pharisee that came to Jesus. And he said, how, must, how, how might someone be born again? Jesus says, to be born again, you've got to be born not by flesh, 
but you've got to be born by the Spirit. And then Jesus goes on with that Pharisee, and he gives it what we call now John 3.16. And Jesus says to this Pharisee, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, and that whosoever, even Pharisees and hypocrites and scribes, whoever believes in Him will inherit eternal life. What did Jesus do for the hypocrite? What did He do for you? What is your hope? Like I said, I've got good news for you. Amen. The Bible says, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The world places guilt on your shoulders. The world says you're not good enough because of what you did last night. That means you're going to hell this morning. But the Bible says for God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. I've got good news for you. Come on, somebody say amen. amen. In a shocking turn of events, Jesus takes the condemnation of the hypocrite on Himself. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives within me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. My hypocrisy was placed onto Jesus on the cross. Jesus became a hypocrite for the hypocrites. And the hypocrite has been crucified with Christ. He's dead. She's gone and raised to new life in Christ. And it's now Christ who lives through you. I've got good news. Romans 8.1 then says this, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You walked in here this morning a hypocrite. You've come to the refuge of Jesus Christ. You've come under the wings of His righteousness. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You came filled with greed and self-indulgence and lust. Oh, you look good on the outside, but dirty on the inside. Friends, come to the purity of Jesus Christ and you can shout, Hallelujah, I'm free, I am forgiven. Dealing with the guilt of your sins that you committed yesterday, last night, this morning, because of Jesus Christ, you can shout hallelujah as if you never sinned in your life. That's what it means to come into the refuge of Jesus Christ. We sing, we praise, we shout, we dance as if we never even sinned. We are in Christ. Friends, don't be one that refuses this refuge. Come in. Come in. Come to Him. All who are weary and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the refuge of Jesus Christ. We pray that we will come in. We pray that we will remain in his refuge under the wings of his righteousness in the safety of his own work. God, let us from that place live a genuine faith. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.